0: As you guys have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Uh, Last week, we initially dug into this chapter, going through the first 24 verses. And this week, we come to verses 25 through 36. So, as you have your Bibles or device, whatever you may have Go ahead and turn there, and you'll want to follow along with me. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, you'll see these little blue books under the chairs around you, and you don't have a Bible, and you need one, please feel free to take it, to borrow it, to have it. Uh, we know where to get. We have plenty of them, and we know where to get more. So please follow along with us this morning in God's Word as we look at His Word together in John 7. John 7, starting in verse 25. This is the word of the Lord. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. So ends the reading of God's holy word. This is the word of the Lord. All right, pray along with me. Father, we come to you this morning. And we're jumping into the middle of this scene, the scene that we are in. We started it last week. We're in it this week, and we'll continue it next week. Father, be with us now as we take a look at this, especially as things narrow here. And we're asking this question, is Jesus the Christ? Father, be with us this morning. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to receive your word, to receive your truth, Press it deep so that as we leave here, it will impact and we will live lives for you. Father, we're thankful for this time together to look at your word. Speak through me now. May you help me to speak only your words, your truth. And we ask all this in your name. Amen. You know, as you go through life, you have questions. You have questions, some are big. Maybe some are more humorous, or maybe some are the ones just right in front of you at the moment on an exam. But we have these big questions, some of the questions that, what is life? What is consciousness? Does the universe, is the universe deterministic? What happens when we die? These are just some of the big questions, and I see your faces, that came up when we were... When, uh, I was looking at the 50th anniversary uh, issue for New Scientist. These were the big questions that they were saying were of our time. But some looked and found more humorous ones. One person in particular looked at the common magazines of our time and had a whole list of questions, and here's just some I want to read for you. It's 5 o'clock. Is your makeup still fabulous? So how does the man of steel shave? What do you hate most about vacuuming? Why do we love football? What's your dinner made of? Can your deodorant do this? And these are just some of the ones she gathered just from our publications in our current day. These are the big questions. And so our questions, they range from serious to humorous to maybe if you're a student, it's that exam question right in front of you at the moment. Since 1938, Time magazine has had Jesus on the cover a total of 21 times. That tells us something. Newsweek isn't far behind. I couldn't get an exact number on it. But that tells us something, doesn't it? That that question is important in our culture, even up to this day, that it keeps coming up. And it's all in every issue, it was always this version of the question who is Jesus? And before us this morning in this passage that we just read, we have a similar question before us, a serious question, a question that isn't just like an online survey, but it's a question of eternal value. And so we come to see this question today, is this man, Jesus, the Christ? Is this man before us, this man, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah? It's an important question in our world that it keeps coming up. It's not a question that's going to go away. It's an important question because depending on how we answer it, it will shape and affect how we live and ultimately where we spend eternity. But it's also an important question because Jesus, as we'll see here, he will not let you take him just as a good man. He will not let you take him as a prophet. He will not let you take him as a wise man. He didn't leave that open to us. His claims are so much in your face. You've got to go one way or the other with him. And you've got to say either he is the Christ or he is not. And we're confronted with that this morning. Now, some of you have probably thought about this question and and the matter is settled in your mind one way or the other. But maybe some of you don't know what you think or others of you, you haven't thought much about it. Or maybe for some of you, you're thinking, why is this the big question? Why is this a big question? What's the issue we're talking about? What's the problem that needs an answer like this? Those are good questions. I'm so glad you're tracking with me this morning. Those are great questions. One thing is true about our world. That as you look at it, it does not work the way it should. It is broken. Things don't work We don't get 100% rate of return on everything we invest, everything we put into it. It doesn't come back that way, does it? Maybe you would use the term broken or that it has weaknesses. But what we see in our world, we see that uh, there is real pain, isn't there? There's real evil. But yet there's also real joy. Real joy. There's real hardships. There's real happiness. And so... This second century culture, which is where we are today, they were asking the right questions at the right time. They were asking the right question at the right time because Jesus' presence, you would expect, the kind of things he's saying, that would evoke a response. Amen. That, would re- that would evoke a response to who am I? And so, is Jesus the Christ? That's our question this morning. Is he the one that can come and fix this brokenness, this pain? Is he the one that can really give us peace and really give us joy deep down in my heart and satisfy my wantings? Can he do that? Is this the Jesus? Is this the Christ? Well, as we jump into this scene, um, this, is, this is like jumping into an ongoing scene. Imagine, you know, you're, you're at like a massive gathering party and, you know, it's been going on for a while and you, you come walking in and you see this intense conversation and just kind of stop and go, what's going on here? Yeah, he's saying some strong stuff. How do I? I don't have my bearings here. Where are we in this? And this scene is kind of in the middle, and it'll end next week. But as Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths—maybe some of your translations use one of those two words—here he is. He's been teaching. He's been proclaiming. And he's saying some pretty challenging things. Uh, in verse, in chapter seven, verse nineteen, he's challenging them, saying, "You don't keep the law." In chapter 7, 24, he says, judge with right judgment. And he's saying this because they don't believe who he is, who he said he was. They don't believe in him. And so it's no surprise as we kind of jump in the middle of this scene that they're saying these kind of things as we read verses 25 and 27. Look how verse 25 and 27 start. After Jesus has said these things, they say, isn't this, to paraphrase, isn't this the one that you're trying to kill? But yet here he is, speaking openly, publicly, saying these things, and the authorities are nearby, they know about it, but they're not doing anything. Could it be that they really think he is the Christ? The one. Maybe they went off into the corners and have some new evidence, and they think he really is the Christ. Is he? Nah, they're real quick, aren't they? They're real quick to say no, that it couldn't be him, because we know where he comes from. And our understanding of things is that you're not going to know where he comes from. So this can't be the Christ. Now, just to fill you in on this, you're thinking to yourself, if you know the Bible, you say, no, wait a minute, the Old Testament did talk about Jesus coming. So why why was this the predominant view at the time? Well... Fortunately, there were there were two there were two views going on at this time. And fortunately in this passage in chapter seven, we get to see both of these views. And the one view was that you just wouldn't know. His his origin would be completely unknown until the day he comes, and there he is. And they pulled this from extra-biblical texts, texts that are outside of Scripture, outside of the Old Testament. For example, uh 4th Ezra chapter 13, 51 through 52 says. No one on earth can see my son or those who are with him except in the time of his day. Justin Martyr, a Christian apologist in the second century, in his uh, dialogue with Trifo, he says this, or this was the dialogue that Trifo had said. He said, the Messiah, even if he be born and actually exists somewhere, is an unknown. You see, he believed that the Messiah would be born of flesh and blood yet he would be wholly unknown until he appeared. And so this was a view that was predominant in the culture at the time that, no, we wouldn't necessarily know where the Messiah is from. But yet, if you look a little further, and we'll get to it in verses 40 through 44, you'll see another view. You'll see the view where it says in verse 42, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And where they were citing this from was they knew Micah five two. In Micah five two, it says, "O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days." And so this other view knew. And just to give you perspective here, when it says Bethlehem Ephrathah, this is how fine tuned it was that. Not only would we know where he comes from, but we would really know where he comes from. It's kind of like saying, he's not going to come from Hollywood, California. He's not coming from Hollywood, Florida. But he's coming from Hollywood, South Carolina. It does exist. Look it up on your map. (laughs) That's how precise it was. And so these two views were competing in the day, and they think they know. And so they easily dismiss Jesus. But Jesus doesn't let them go with that. Look down in your verse, uh, verse 28, where Jesus responds, verses 28 and 29. And he says, basically to paraphrase, you know me, you know where I'm from, but yet you don't know the one who sent me, the Father. I know him, for I come from the Father. He sent me. And so here's Jesus, and you'll see this word right there in verse 28, it says proclaim. Just to give you perspective here, that word is a very strong word. It wasn't as if this was just some side conversation at a party. And where Jesus says, no, you think you know, and the little huddle over here. Like, the word is so strong that he literally shouted it. He proclaimed it loudly. Like, Jesus will not back off. Jesus will not back down. Whatever he's doing, he's doing it publicly. He's doing it clearly. And he will let you know, this is what, this is what I believe. This is, what, this is how things are. And so he says publicly and loudly, using this kind of iconic or ironic language, that you think you know? You don't know. You think you do, but you don't. And his father is the one who has sent him. And this is what's interesting. Jesus' divine commission, him saying, I have been sent from the father, separates him from others. And he actually, And this is something that they will continue to talk to him about as we go through the book of John. This is going to come up again. This stuff talking to him about his father um, and that he's been sent from the father. And what's implied here in this is that those who recognize Jesus see him as the Christ. They really do know God. And those who don't, they don't know God. This is something that comes up later in John 8, verse 19, as well as verse 55. I just want to read that for you. They said to him, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. And so Jesus has been divinely commissioned, sent from the Father. And that's something, so just to give you perspective here, think of it this way. In our, in our time, it matters who sends you, right? If you are a messenger of the court, or if you are a bicycle messenger, those have two distinct authorities, don't they? Right? A messenger of the court comes out from the court with the authority of the court, giving you what the court has said, but also executor. What do they do? They're just carrying the packages, letters, etc., and just delivering it to you and walking away. There's a difference here, and and Jesus is coming with authority because he's been sent by the Father. And that's important, because generally speaking, if we just think about this for a moment, what we do... Evidence is the truth of what we claim. Amen. What we do, evidence is the truth of what we claim. So for example, if you claim to be an Olympic swimmer, but every time I see you get in the pool, you're wearing those floaties that the kids wear, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wonder. But if you tell me you're a writer, and but yet you can't read and write, I'm going to wonder. So in this passage, the reason this divine commission is important is that If he has been sent from the Father, and if this is true, then you will expect to see things that would be true of someone who says such a thing. Right? If he has been divinely commissioned from the Father, then you expect to see things that reflect that and show that to be true. I'm glad you guys are tracking and you're answering that question. You're asking those questions because that's exactly where the passage goes next. This path, the verses in 30 through 36, we see not only uh, is he the Christ because of his divine commission from the Father, but that he's also the Christ because of his works. And the first thing, look down with me there at verse 30, where their response to this in verse 30 is basically they're going to arrest him. Kind of like saying, you're not the Christ. You can't say these things. Arrest him. But don't miss that second half of verse 30. It's subtle and sometimes we can gloss right over it. But it's so powerful. It's like one of those things in literature that are so pregnant with such meaning and such power. It's easy to pass over. But it carries with it such weight and authority. Don't miss this in verse 30. He says, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Don't let that pass you by. That God is in charge and in control of all these things. And they say, Arrest him. And God says, No, not yet. It's not time. And you will not arrest him until the time that I have ordained. And God, in his power, is so sovereign. We see this come to the come through on the pages of Scripture. Um, that he actually um, has his, is acting out his sovereign will. We see this in Uh, John 10, verses 17 through 18. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so even though it looks like things are out of control, even though it looks like they're going to get their way, God says no. Not yet. Not until... I have ordained it, not until my timetable is complete. And so they might want to arrest him, but it's not happening yet. And that's let that be comforting to us. That God, in his sovereignty, is in control over all things, no matter how dismal things look, no matter how hard things can be. And even play this out, what eventually happened to Jesus. It looks like, oh no, it failed. He wasn't it. God is moving and acting, and he is sovereign, and he's working out his plan, and it cannot be thwarted by man. Amen. And so, we see his sovereign power in his work, his, his the work of his sovereign power here. But it moves on, this passage moves on, and we see the work of his signs in verse 31. We see another response, don't we? There is the response of, No, he's not the Christ, we know better. But then you have this response they believe in Jesus. And that they are compelled by the signs. At this point, popular, uh, in popular thought in their culture, they didn't necessarily put the two together to expect the Messiah to be someone who would be doing signs. But yet they put it together. And rightly so, they should. If you look at passages like Isaiah 35, 4-6, and then Matthew 11:2 2-5, you see that the Messiah, when he comes, he will do these signs. He will do these miracles. Now, I want to be careful here because it's, the passage points out that they believe because of his signs. But I also want to caution us that Scripture doesn't tell us to believe, to base our faith fully, foundationally, because we have seen signs or miracles or powers. It's not to be based on that. But yet, it's, it's better than nothing. In, in chapter 10, verse 38... Jesus even said himself, But if I do them, that is, signs, miracles, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And so while this looks on the page, on the face of it, that this is kind of an infant faith, there are those later that will say in verses 40 through 44, No, he is the prophet, no, he is the Christ. But here they're saying they believe in Jesus but it's because of his miracles. But I want to point something out, that even though this might look like an infant faith, is it not still a faith? A faith, no matter how small, is faith. And so they believe in Jesus. They've seen the power of his miracles, and they believe. And that's what the miracles were designed to do. The miracles were designed to point to Christ and say, he is the Christ. He is who he says he is. Um, think of it this way. you know, We, are, we, go, we go out, all the time, driving, you see all kinds of signs, right? Um, you guys, you probably, maybe you see these. I think some of, you, some of us who have been driving so long, we probably don't see these. But there's these signs that come before the stop sign, right, that let you know there's a stop sign ahead, right? They're yellow, they're kind of diamond-shaped, has a, has a picture of the red stop sign on it. How funny would it be if you saw people stopping at that sign? It would be pretty ridiculous, right? You don't stop there, right? It's a sign pointing to the reality. What's the reality? The stop sign up ahead. That's where you stop. And that's what these things were meant to do. They weren't meant to be the end and end of themselves, but to point to Christ himself, to something greater. And so these signs, which they saw, pointed them toward. It evidenced, it bolstered that Jesus is the Christ. And they saw and they believed But then lastly here we see the work of his complete redemption in verses 33 through 36. As the authorities have gotten together and they're coming to arrest him and they're looking for an opportunity, Jesus says he will be with them a little longer and then he's going to go back to the Father. Now that's a loaded statement. I'm going back to the Father? Just think about all that's contained in what he just said. The way in which he was going to go back to the Father was not going to be an easy way. But it was going to be a glorious way because he would would die on the cross for the sins of his people. He was going to go through death on the cross. And he was going to be buried and rise bodily on the third day. And then he would eventually ascend into heaven to be with the Father. And to have that glory he once had at the beginning This is something that was powerful. This was something that was, what he was telling them was going to take place. He's going back to the Father. Just as Jesus said in John 17, 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is going to go back and enjoy that glory that he first had with the Father before the world existed. That's where he's going And he will have accomplished and he will be seated because he will have accomplished the work for which he came. That's powerful. And so Jesus tells them they cannot come where he's going. What exactly does he mean by that? He said the same thing to his disciples. What does he mean by that? Well, I think what's implied here in in this part where he says this to him is that you cannot come because you don't believe in me. This is something he'll say later on in chapter 8, verse 21. He'll say, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. And so there's a sense which you cannot come because you do not believe who I am, who I say I am. You will not be there. But then he tells his disciples later on in chapter 13 the same thing. You, will, you cannot come where I am. And in that context, he tells them that, that he tells Peter specifically that you cannot come now, but you will come later. Jesus also said in John fourteen that I go to prepare a place for you. So what does he mean here, non-believers, that you cannot come because you do not believe? But he's also telling his disciples that I'm going to have, I'm going back to heaven, I'm dying a particular death, to then go back into heaven to be with my Father and have that glory that we once had. At the beginning, I'm going in a special way. And you cannot come in this way, shape, and fashion. But you will come. You will follow later at another time. And so we see here Jesus' complete redemption. That by him saying, I'm going back to the Father, he's saying, it is finished. It is accomplished. And we see his powerful work. The people are thinking earthly they're not thinking spiritually but yet this passage ends with them still saying as you look at the end of the passage what does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me and where i am you cannot come take in their questions this morning are they your questions do you still have questions about that not quite understand what does he mean by what he's saying In this passage, the question's been asked of us, is this man the Christ? And it's not just a popular survey question that you can take or leave. It's a matter of life and death. You know, one of the things I didn't talk about is the context of what Jesus is saying these things in. If you notice in your, in your Bibles, in chapter 7, verse 1, it said the Feast of booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. This context that Jesus is in, where he is speaking with such authority, is in the midst of a festival that was designed to celebrate when um, it first came up, when they came out of Egypt, where they had been rescued from the land of slavery, which is a picture of sin, and they had been rescued and God told them to build these booths and to, and to dwell in them for that time in order to show that he is the one who provides and the one that protects. They did this after the harvest because he is the one that provides. The picture here that would have been displayed to them as they celebrate this, this, this festival was that God protects and God provides. And here's Jesus standing in the middle of this. Where God the Father has sent the Son, saying, here he is. The one who protects and provides what you truly need. He is the Christ and he stands right before you. But yet you won't have him. And he is everything. He is the Christ, the one who protects and the one who provides the salvation that you desperately need. He's standing before us this morning too. He's standing before us asking that same question. Is Jesus the Christ? Some of you this morning are saying, yes, he is. And I want to encourage you then look to him even more as the provision and protection that you need. Look to him and see again how he has provided for you. And let that stir your heart and love him all the more. Some of you this morning may be going, I don't know. I haven't thought about this or I'm still thinking about it. That's okay. I'll tell you what, do me a favor, ask the next question. Keep going with your questions and let's keep talking about it. Keep asking those questions because there's not a question that Jesus is afraid of nor other scriptures don't have an answer for because he is the Christ. Keep asking. But some of you this morning, you're saying, no, this matter is resolved. I do not believe he is the Christ. But yet, he keeps coming up. He won't go away. And he stands before you this morning as we have seen that that he has been sent from the Father and he has evidenced himself that he was sent from the Father in the works that he did. The works of his, his sovereignty. The works of his signs. The work of the complete redemption that he offered. This didn't happen in a corner in a closet. This is testified. This is an authoritative testimony that we have before us of these things happening. And he stands before you this morning, and the question is put to you, is he the Christ? And I want to encourage you, believe in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and we are confronted with this question as we have looked at this scene, and we're only partway through it. It will conclude next week, and but yet we've been challenged with that question, are you, is your son the Christ? Father, as we think about that question, as those here wrestle with it, as those here think they have already dealt with that question, Father, I pray that again you would be with those who do know you, that you would Encourage their hearts and minds of your incredible provision and protection. I pray, Father, for those who have continued questions. I pray they would keep asking those questions and they would look for answers. I ask, Father, for those who do not know you, who have think that they have settled that question, I pray, Father, they would consider once again and look and see that you are the Christ and the one that can bring true healing the one that can give eternal life, the one that can truly satisfy. Father, do that work here in our midst. Help us to proclaim this truth and to proclaim it in love. I thank you for this time. We ask all this in your name. Amen.